Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. All righty. <clears throat> What is up, everybody, and welcome into a very special edition of the DMVR Nuggets podcast presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Use promo code DMVR whenever you sign up. Let me get the thing up there in the top. I'm going to do an ad-free notebook edition of the podcast. So so some of you that are new, back in the day, a long time ago, two years ago, I used to do notebook podcasts after every single game. Those is where I would go back and rewatch the game and take notes along the way, make specific ones, maybe give timestamps or what have you, and then usually follow it up with the list. I've got a new edition of the list, kind of a new way of putting it out. I think I'll put that out here later this afternoon. I have it all edited together and ready to go. But first, I'll share with you the notes that I have, sort of the takeaways, themes that I'm seeing, statistics, and more specifically plays, and just kind of walk them through. I'd like to do more of these throughout the year. They're some of my favorite podcasts to do. It's weird doing them with the video interface, but I do like going through and just kind of giving more detailed analysis than what you usually get when we're doing the roundtable stuff. Of course, we get good instant reaction, really good perspective, all the different guys, but this is one where you kind of go through things with a fine-tooth comb and figure out what's what. So without further ado, no ads in this show today. We will have five other episodes later on this week, um, the rest of the week, but today we'll do ad-free. So here are the notes. Just went back and watched it. As is almost always the case, whenever you rewatch a game, the good things look less good and the bad things look less bad. Everything seems a little bit more condensed. When you're watching it, immediate takeaways, things feel so, so significant. When you rewatch it, you go, okay, there's a lot of things going on. All teams have a lot of things they can clean up on. Let's focus in on the details. The first one I have here, you know, one of the themes for the Nuggets this year is going to be the integration of Jamal Murray into, you know, the with the rest of the team and then figuring out what their identity is. One of the things that I think can speed that process along, and this is, by the way, a trait of Jamal Murray's throughout his entire career, he loves to delay the secondary actions on a play. So let's say you run an option to the left side. Murray's on the right side. You got Jokic, and he's going to run a pin down of some kind on the other side. Let's say Bruce Brown. Um, maybe it's KCP, whatever. And that action doesn't develop anything. You get the handoff. The guy comes into the middle and then kicks it to Jamal or kicks it back to Jokic, and Jokic is going to now reverse it to Jamal. So Jamal's not the first option, but he's the second one. The best offense is when all of the plays happen in perfect timing. And there's examples of the Nuggets running this with all varied uh, variations of players where one action, you know, whether it works or doesn't work, whatever it is, it segues perfect into the second action and the timing is just so perfect. And it puts tension on the defense because both the on-ball defenders and the backside defenders 
they're defending one action. And then when it goes straight into the other one, they have to go from maybe help side to all of a sudden now I have to close out on ball and immediately do something. Or maybe I go from one help side, you know, you know, deep help side, and then I have to kind of step up and get ready for a completely different help side defense. Jamal, one of the characteristics from him that I think he can help the Nuggets out by picking his spots of when to try to be a little bit quicker is he'll hold the ball or he'll hold his cut. So there's a specific play, I believe I have it on the list, where Jamal Murray sees the first option. Jokic turns to him like, okay, let's go to phase two, the second entry on this play. And Jamal Murray stops, takes kind of a breath, and then makes his cut. And in that one second delay, the defense cuts through, recovers, gets set, looks at the court, and goes, okay, here we're going to go. And the thing is, the Murray-Jokic two-man game is so good that setting that up sort of calmly is fine. They get away with it a lot. But when we talk about starting to stack the various, you know, how do you get the most out of a Jokic, a Murray, a Porter, a KCP, you start to add all this offensive talent, there can be diminishing returns. Well, one of the quickest ways I think that they can change this is with Jamal specifically, just being a little bit more ahead of the play to say like, okay, if this doesn't work, I want to cut as soon as Jokic turns his head to go to the second entry. Boom. I want to be able to sprint into that because it's so much harder. It's going to lend itself to more to back cuts. It's going to lend itself more to setups. And then you go off of the dribble handoff and you're wide open for three. And it's just something that his whole career, he's been a little bit slow at. This is number, this is one of the things that happened really early in the game. That's why it's note number one, not necessarily that it's the most important, but that it's one with Jamal that I think he can really clean up on. Um, I think Michael Porter has a little bit of this as well in that him sprinting into dribble handoffs is so key. And more importantly, sprinting into them with the mindset of I'm going to catch this one and elevate. And I have some examples. I actually have a good and bad example of Michael Porter doing this. The one that really sticks out, sticks out in my mind is the second three-pointer. So the first three-pointer he hits is a transition three, a pull-up. We call those the yeah, Mike. He pulls up in transition, knocks it down. The second one features him actually, I think, just feeling it. Like he hit one. He, he's, he senses he has an opportunity. He sprints from the right wing all the way to the left wing to receive a handoff from Jokic and goes right into his jumper. And it's beautiful. It goes in. So he gets two for two to start. The footwork on those are so important, the preparation, but more importantly, the timing on those are so important. When we talk about the Warriors and how they stretch everybody out, it's not just that they have good three-point shooters. It's that they go into those types of actions off screen and off of dribble handoffs so quickly and so they're so prepared to shoot before they even catch the ball. They know they're going to catch and go right into it. And if you sagged off for a second, elevate, knock it down with a hand in your face. If they do jump out it, elevate and then drop it off to the dump guy. Michael Porter, one, his footwork on these, you know, I think still needs a little bit of work. There's one example I put on the list that that's really obvious where he comes off the defender. I think it's Matt Ryan goes deep under. Jokic is set the screen inside the three-point line and the defender goes under Yoke. You think about it. If the defender ever goes under Steph Curry, especially if it's at the three-point line, not even a deep three, just at the three-point line, if a defender ever goes over, guaranteed that's an open three-pointer for Steph Curry. He's going into it every single time. In this example, Porter grabs the ball, actually takes a dribble, then sidesteps to the left and elevates, and he still gets the shot off, and it's still relatively clean. But I think it's LeBron James that actually, who's guarding Jokic at that moment, who jumps out, who wasn't planning to jump out. He just sees that Porter wasn't prepared to shoot before he caught it, so he needs to take sort of a steady dribble and then go into it. And it's just one of those ones where I know if Michael Porter just improves these little details, his footwork on the catch, those are going to become even more open. It went from an open, like a wide open three to a like mildly contested one and he missed it.
So I think he can still improve his preparation on his footwork, specifically on dribble handoffs, because he has to be able to do those at 100%. The, the sprinting into the catch has to happen so fast. And the more you speed yourself up, the harder it is to have good footwork unless you've really internalized it. I got a couple examples of those on the list. Um, Aaron Gordon hit some threes, including a pull-up in transition. I don't love the pull-up in transition one, and I don't like the sidestep right three. And he hit both of them in this game. Is that good process? I don't know. I will say, and Michael Malone had a comment about this after practice the other day, where it's important not to tell a guy not to take a shot because you need them to like understand good process. You need them to understand these things, but you don't want Aaron Gordon second guessing himself. That being said, Aaron Gordon, I think can self-regulate. Yes, he hit those in this game, but there are moments in every game where he's going to have a, yes, you need to shoot that three-pointer. They're kickouts, they're corner shots. Taking the ones that are like that right dribble sidestep and, and transition ones, you got to be really confident. So it's a tough balancing act because teams are really daring him to shoot. And I think the more teams dare you to shoot, the more you want to sort of punish them for that. But there's a time and a place for it. That being said, he hit him in this game. So, you know, carry on. I think he's something like 4 of 21 or something like that on the season. So still not a great number. But um, again, internalizing just the sense of when you're supposed to take certain types of shots is such a big thing. The Murray Jokic on the on the rewatch, one of the biggest things that stood out to me was how much the Murray Jokic two man game really looks like it's doing well, or, or really had some moments where you go, okay, that's the old Murray Jokic two man game. They just feeling each other. Murray does a very good job. I mean, he's such a dynamic scorer with footwork that he does a really good job. That if you can turn the corner, you know, the the on ball guard is trailing the screen. He goes over the screen, and now you can create that two on one situation where you're playing cat and mouse with the big. Does he step up and stop the ball or does he stay to Jokic? And I thought there were good moments throughout this game where Murray really punishes the big for that, whether it's slowing it down, speeding it up, slow down, speed up, and make that defender make a choice, whether it's getting all the way to the rim and exploding, pulling up for the jumper, or hitting Jokic on the pocket pass. He just had a lot of different ones of those that you look and you go, okay, there's a good sign. More so than any other game, you say there's a sign of the two-man game getting back to what it used to be. Still a long way to go. But it was, uh, I would say, a notable improvement uh, on, let's say, game number one of the season. And then DeAndre Jordan, I have a note here. He's been rebounding the, the ball really well. Uh, the number one, every player has a number one task. DeAndre Jordan's number one task is defensive rebounding. And he's been grabbing boards lately. He still has some mistakes. I don't love the way he always is in drop. Like sometimes he'll give these wide open transition opportunities or wide open shots, or a team will run something specifically knowing that he's not going to extend himself out of the paint. And it's frustrating to watch, especially when you play your better shooting teams, it's frustrating to watch. Um, and, and like just some general effort stuff, but he is protecting the rim. He had a couple nice block shots, including a huge one on, on Anthony Davis in this last game. And he has been rebounding. And those are the number one, the number one and number two things he needs to be doing. And I think he's done a good job of both of those. Uh, I have a note in here just that Bruce Brown is not a point guard. Hot take, I know. But um, some of the plays, being a point guard is not just about can you dribble, can you run uh, pick and roll, can you uh, pass, are you a willing passer? A lot of it is also just how well do you read the court, how how well do you lead uh, the court. And I think Bruce Brown is a very good secondary and, and, and third ball handler. But as a primary point guard, the other duties that are required in playing point guard, I think, um, he, I don't think he does those very well. The obvious one was at the end of the third quarter when he went two for one, when there wasn't enough time for a two for one, you know, that's an innocent mistake. Even young point guards will make that one. 
But I just think that that was an indicative of a lot of those types of things where he doesn't necessarily have the skill set and awareness to do that. And by the way, this isn't a knock on him. Bruce is not a point guard. That's not his role. So it's it would be like, you know, asking Michael Porter to be a center or, or a point guard or something like that. Judging him for that would be tough. But I think when we talk about, oh, he can run point guard with Jokic. Yes. With anybody else, I don't think so. And last night, unfortunately, Bones ish both out. Uh, you had to do something. And that was the best option. Michael Porter's fouls on rewatch were really tough. You know, the third leg of, of what happened yesterday was Michael Porter getting into foul trouble and Michael Malone putting him on the bench, which is an understandable decision, even if I think it was the wrong one in that night. I think rolling the dice on him not picking up a fifth and sixth foul was more worthwhile than rolling the dice on a non-point guard, non-Jokic, non-Murray, non-Porter lineup, which ended up giving that 13-0 run. So I think Michael Malone made the worst of two bad decisions, but he was led to that in large part by Michael Porter's fouls, which I think all of the first three were really, really um, just bad decisions. The fourth one on LeBron, you know, it's a tough call. LeBron got a superstar call, and Michael Porter was kind of helpless defensively. I mean, the, the other part of that foul being a weak call was that Michael Porter got completely blown by for LeBron gets a layup. And then he kind of bumps him at the end on the softest call ever. And he gets the call. But the first three were just plays where Mike made a bad, the worst of them was a post entry to Aaron Dave, uh, Anthony Davis. And, you know, Michael Porter's guy curls around and then clears through the side. And Michael Porter tries to steal it from Anthony Davis, his hands. And he just like, it was such a lazy attempt at swiping at the ball and he just hits all of his arm. And it's one of those ones where what are the odds you pick up a foul on a play like that versus the odds that you get a steal? They're so low. You're probably more likely to get a foul in that scenario than you are to get a steal. So is the gamble really worth it? And more importantly, in a game where you already are short bones, Michael Porter now has to realize that he is an important you know, player that needs to be on the court. And just going for those types of plays to me are a lack of discipline. And this is now two games out of, I think, the last four where Michael Porter has been in foul trouble. He, he's just got to clean those things up. So look at those fouls, clean them up, and, and be a little bit smarter. And hopefully we're not talking about Michael Porter flat foul trouble. That wasn't a thing I came into the season thinking about, but I am now after seven games. Um, Ish Smith was just really bad in his minutes. He's clearly been on the shelf for a while. And then you put him into the game and he just didn't have it. He made some really bad decisions for a point guard. Um, you know, he has some skills that Monte Morris doesn't, the quickness. Um, but he also lacks some of the things Monte does. Like Monte, even when Monte was on the shelf, to come in and have some unforced fast break turnovers are just things you rarely saw. So Ish, uh, a little disappointing in his stretch. But again, we talked about Bones looking bad with that second unit. We talked about Ish now looking bad with that second unit. And you lo looked at the lack of either of those guys looking bad at that second unit. I think it reminds me last year a lot of Faku, where Faku looked really bad because he was clearly the worst point guard for a flawed bench unit when you brought DeMarcus Cousins in it was right around the exact same time you were taking Faku out and you know the bench all of a sudden looks solved when you start to make move these pieces around but Faku became the fall guy like as bad as much as he struggled and much as he was not good and not the solution I think he became a little bit of a fall guy I think we can look at Bones now we can look at Ish and we can look at the lineups with neither of them and say when that unit is forced to play as a five-man bench unit, there's no saving it. There's no one player, especially a, a second-year point guard, that's going to save it. So it's just important context, I think, going forward. Huge note I have here is that Michael Porter Jr. is a killer in transition. He is elite 
because of his skill set, and also just because he likes to play in the in the open court, he puts pressure on you. Six ten, he's very fast. He doesn't look it because he doesn't always. Not everything he does is smooth, especially his like open court running. But it's very effective, and he hits the three in transition at an insane rate. He gets to the rim, he gets fouled because he's so long. If you're like a six five guard and it's a one on one, odds are you're going to foul Michael Porter because he jumps higher than you think. He's six foot ten to begin with, and he just can beat you at all three levels. So playing in transition to me is going to be one of the keys with Michael Porter specific lineups, which includes, by the way, the starting lineup when he's out there, he's, he is scoring personally 1.76 points per possession. That's the best on the team. And that's also an insane number. That's 176 offensive rating and just transition plays. All transition is higher than usual. Like most players are in the 1.3, 1.4 points per possession. 1.76 is super high. And he plays the most frequent of anybody in the Nuggets roster in transition. He likes to get there. What's interesting is Jamal Murray plays the slowest of anybody on the Denver Nuggets. And so some of what I think we're seeing here is Murray Jokic, a great half-court offense. Michael Porter in all situations, Bones Highland in all situations, really good in the open court. Figuring out when to play and when to press and when to be a little bit slower is going to be key. But to me, you have Michael Porter. You've got KCP and Jamal Murray and Jokic. I think Denver can get out and run the break a little bit more. In fact, a lot more. Um, but I don't think it'll be a priority for the Nuggets early on in the season. They got to sort of put out a couple fires before they can start moving on to what to add. But nonetheless, just put it in your um, file it away as this is a skill set of Michael Porter's that the Nuggets have not fully tapped into just quite yet. And then on the other end, Denver has been horrible. Listen, this last game in transition defense. A majority of why, if you broke down why did Denver lose this game, I would say reason number one, that second unit that closed the, the third quarter was atrocious. But a lot of that even was in, in transition. We can talk about that in a second. But also the starters, your good players, even your good defensive players like Bruce Brown, good defensive player, he had a horrible transition play where he gave up a wide open layup. And so the transition defense, you look at the, the Lakers, they have been a horrible half-court team when you slow them down. So you know line number one, two, and three is going to be don't let them get in transition. They have a really, really hard time scoring 110 points, which is kind of like the benchmark you need to win a game in the NBA these days. They have a hard time scoring 110 if you force them to play in the half court. Denver, Jokic in particular, but really everybody on the roster was so undisciplined in transition defense in this game. Uh, and, and it was, to me, item number one or item number two of why they lost. And then this big note, so item number one, pro, so transition defense is probably item number two. It's the most, it was everybody. So I think you could, you know, you could make that item line item number one. But the real reason they lost this game was the end of that third quarter. And when I went back and rewatched it, that was an offensive problem, not a defensive one. Most of the points that were scored were in transition or they were just the product of tough shot making, which happens. Like Lonnie Walker hits two or three jumpers in a row, including one that could have easily been a four-point play. He elevates for three. I don't remember who it was that closed out and kind of crowded his landing space. He makes it. It's an incredibly tough shot to make for anybody, let alone a 28% three-point shooter. But he knocks it down. They didn't call the foul, so Denver got lucky there. But what was interesting to me is, one, you have Russell Westbrook on the court at this time who loves to play fast and loves to play in transition. And, by the way, he was really rough in the half court. So you have him on the court. But then, you know, Michael Malone, whenever, and he was in, again, his hands were tied. But in that stretch, if you look at the lineup that you had, you had um, – uh, let's see, DeAndre Jordan and Jeff Green is your front court. You had uh, Bruce Brown 
and let's see, Davon Reed out there. And I think you might have had so Christian Brown, Bruce Brown, Davon Reed. I think that was the trio. So all bench guys. I think even though Bruce Brown's a starter, like you're not saving that. Um, none of those guys, first of all, you didn't have a point guard, so you know that already you're gonna have a hard time like just steadying things, reading. Are you supposed to play fast or slow? This is why I say Bruce is not a point guard because he wasn't sensing these things in real time. A lot of times he was pushing the envelope or he was getting the ball, you know, trying to put it in places where I thought Denver didn't have a good chance. You call a couple of Jeff Green ISOs, like you call those from the sideline. Hey, we're going to run this play. Uh, some, of, some of these are plays that I've actually broken down on what makes this play great. There's a play specifically called the Jeff Green ISO and they run that one. Um, uh, and he shoots a fall away baseline with like 10 seconds on the clock. That was an offense. Uh, that was a lineup that, to me, if you looked at what went wrong, it was their offensive decision making and offensive ineptitude that one made them very easy to score. They didn't score over that stretch, like two minute stretch. They had zero points that made them very easy to defend. But more important than just being easy to defend, they made them easy to defend and run on. And this is where Michael Malone, one of my complaints that I, I have about just observing his coaching strategy. Again, he was his hands were so tied. I don't even know what adjustment you would have made other than just, to me, it was such a big risk that to me, my calculation would have been just play Michael Porter with four fouls. He might foul out, but that the risk of him fouling out was lower than to me than the risk of playing a horrible offensive lineup that was just going to give Russell Westbrook, of all people, a lot of transition opportunities that they, of course, capitalized on. So to me, it's another one of those things where we break the game down into offense and defense, but they're so intertwined, especially when you get to extremes, um, You mean meaning of a completely inept offensive lineup. And then Jeff Green is a veteran. He just has to be better, too. He doesn't think like a point guard, but he had two shots in a row where he just pushed it. 14 seconds on the clock, 10 seconds on the clock. C minus at best shots like there it wasn't like he was going quick because he got an A shot or something which sometimes you have to pass up a shot when other teams on a run sometimes you want to pass it up and just make them work in the half court and you want to get a plus shots or at least run some clock and make them work and wear themselves out but when you take a C minus shot two times in a row when the other team is on a run and those shots lead to more it starts to snowball and I thought that's what happened with that lineup so another thing that I think Michael Malone can kind of look at and say these problems start on the offensive end, even if I look at the second half defense and say, wow, they gave up a 140 defensive rating in the second half or whatever the number was. Yes, but how much of that is attributed to the offense? They, Michael Malone put Jamal Murray in to save the bench unit in the fourth, and he wasn't necessarily up for it. He did hit some tough shots. What I thought was interesting about the fourth quarter of this game was that Jamal Murray had a couple hero moments, mostly when Michael Porter came back in, this court opened up a little bit. But... Jamal Murray hit some hero shots that I think were bad process, great result, thanks to Jamal Murray's greatness. And by the way, it's good to have that. It's great to see Jamal Murray capable of having a little four-minute stretch or whatever it was that kind of just saves Denver when nothing else was working. Jokic wasn't in the game yet. Offense had kind of hit, uh, got stuck in the mud. Murray comes in and hits a couple shots, and that's an important thing to have. But I don't think Denver, when they do takeaways from this game, I don't think one of the takeaways should be like, oh, we solved something in that fourth quarter or this or that. Jamal Murray just saved you, and sometimes that's okay. Sometimes Jokic saves you. Sometimes Michael Porter saves you. This one, Jamal Murray saved them, but it still wasn't enough. Um, and then more awful transition at, at crucial moments. So Denver cuts this thing down, I think, to six points, and you're thinking you're right in it. And I don't remember what the exact sequence was, but there was a – I think it was a three-pointer that that – Oh, yes, it was LeBron James. That was exactly what the play was. So you cut it all the way back down to six. You're starting to get there, and it's just 
Make the Lakers earn it in the half court. They had a little hot shooting to end the third quarter. Happens. Make them earn it over and over and over again. And with like five minutes left to go or something, Denver cuts it to six, misses a shot. And in transition, I actually think it was Jokic's fault, although it was a communication breakdown between Jokic and Jamal Murray where, again, bad offensive process, you're sprinting back. Jokic could have sprinted harder and gotten and beaten Anthony Davis down the court. He would, it would have taken full effort, but he could have beaten Anthony Davis down the court, which would allow Jeff Green to release to guard uh, Michael, uh, LeBron James in transition. Instead, Jokic kind of jogs back, sees that only Le- that LeBron has the ball, and is like, I don't want to switch out onto him early. So he goes with Anthony Davis. But Jeff Green is guarding Anthony Davis because he was beating Jokic down the court. And he's thinking, well, if I step out on LeBron early, LeBron will just give Anthony Davis a wide open dunk, which was a good calculation. So both guys go with Anthony Davis into the paint. LeBron pulls up in transition and knocks down the three. And a six-point game goes to nine points with five minutes left, which if you're looking at the odds, even though Denver had some momentum to cut it to six, when that three goes in and it goes back to nine, your odds drop probably 10 15% just in that one play, one possession. But again, it was transition defense, and that was a theme in this entire game. And then the worst one, the game really ended here. And I think it's important to note, I put it uh, on the list. Denver calls a timeout. I think it was the very next play. And out of the timeout, they go for a, Nuggets go for one of their pet plays that they run. You've seen it a hundred times. This little wedge action, which calls for Jokic to get a diagonal screen from the guard in the opposite corner. And then he kind of uh, cuts to the basket and it's an ISO on the block. Or a little bit extended, you know, 15 feet away. Jokic goes to run the play, and KCP, out of a timeout, mind you, doesn't recognize the play. He stands in the corner, and Jokic gets to the foul line. He's expecting the screen to come, and he gets to the foul line, and you could just see him just put his arms down like he's pissed. How did you, coming out of a timeout, no less, how did you not know what your read was on this one? What's interesting to me is KCP had actually, and he's new to the team, he's new to the terminology and all this stuff. We're game seven, he's a veteran. You know, how, where do you, you know, how much leeway do you give here? Jokic was so furious on that moment that he, he ends up going to the three-point line because the, the screen never comes. Anthony Davis is on him. And Jokic shoots a turnaround three-pointer. And I'm telling you, when you go back and watch it, that was a frustration where the team is already down. I think that was when they were literally down nine. It was right after the LeBron three. Call a timeout and you come out of it. So you're already like, we're not, we don't have good odds of winning this one. You're going to have to. You're going to have to have a couple miracles or you're going to have to really be locked in. And right out of the timeout, the team screws up the play call. And Jokic, I think he just goes, F it, game over. I don't care. <laughs> like he just turns around and shoots a three that had such a low chance of doing it. And it was a little pouty. I don't like it. I by no means think it's the okay thing to do. But we keep sitting here wondering, why is Jokic playing the way he has this year? You know, his point totals are down the lowest they've been in four seasons. Um, he doesn't look like he has interest in like, oh, it's an Anthony Davis Jokic matchup. Go send a message like you did in the last game or just, hey, carry the team to some wins early. Why doesn't he seem to have that? And we have all these theories and I don't know the answer, but I would suspect plays like that are a big part of it for Jokic. He's not very understanding or forgiving when other guys don't know things that he feels that they should know. And I think he's even explained this, I think, uh, early on, maybe it was a couple of weeks ago, back when he was being interviewed you know, was asked something about, you know, the team and where they are. And his, he said something like, I have to remember, we have a lot of new guys and I've been in this system for eight years. It's easy for me, but I have to remember that other guys don't. So when a guy like KCP screws up that play and Jokic responds by shooting basically an FU three-pointer, just like, well, 
you know, YOLO or whatever. I think that that gives you a little insight into this is really, this is the hardest part for Jokic. Just understanding why guys don't know the plays or don't understand the spacing or don't understand this or that. And I don't think it's okay. I think Jokic has to like one of his challenges as an NBA player, if he's going to lead this team to a championship as the team's best player, one of the challenges is going to be, can, can he figure that out? Like, Hey, you can't get frustrated. You have to, you have to take some responsibility for the team being brought along. And when they don't, it's okay to be upset, but you got to pick your, your spots for, for where that's going to happen. Those are my notes. Um, you know, that's the notebook. Um, I wasn't able to kind of read the comments here as we were going through it, but, um, you know, wanted to share those things because that was kind of like the the stuff I was seeing the most um, as I went back and rewatched it. Let me pull up here. I know I have, I know I have a couple questions here in a mailbag. Typically, if I do these and we don't have ads, I'll try to do a mailbag as well. Um, Williams asks, Mr. Williams asks, what's something on offense and defense the Nuggets can improve on to come out of this tough road stretch with a positive record? Also, what's a good record after this brutal 12-game run with nine on the road? Um, I know people aren't going to like this, but six and six might be a good record there, which means Denver would come out of it, what, um, 10 and nine? Is that, yeah, 10 and nine, which is not like a very intimidating record. I think if most if the team is 10 and nine, a lot of people are going to say, oh, I thought Denver was good. I'm fully prepared for it because I think this is, I think this is, um, <laughs> this is just how it works. People overreact to early, early season success. Denver has had a very tough schedule, in my opinion, not tough in opponent, but just tough in like catching a rhythm. And by the way, this was made worse by the team going to San Diego. When they come back to Denver in December and have a bunch of road games like in the second half of December, I don't think they're going to be acclimated to the altitude. That will not be an advantage to them. I don't think the team looks like they're in particularly great shape relative to other teams. I don't think they're necessarily in bad shape, but I don't think they look like they're in great shape either. And you think about how much could that have helped if they would have just spent a little bit more time at altitude training and being ready for this. I have to imagine at least a little bit, at least something. Um, but going on the road with all of these games here, I think six and six is kind of a more likely and acceptable record than than um, most people think. My colleague Matt Moore over on Lawn Nuggets he posited that maybe this is a great thing for Denver to be on the road so much because it'll bind the team together. I hope he's right. I just don't see it because it would make more sense to me. And I told him this earlier today on Locked On. If they had a six or seven game road trip, which would be a very long one, but then you came back for like a three or four game homestand, to me, I could say, yeah, this road trip will galvanize them because you're together. But the fact that you're coming home only for a day or two and then going on the road, to me, I think you're not actually going to be spending as much time together as you would typically in a long extended road trip, even though Denver is basically making Denver just an extended stop along a 12 game road trip is what it's going to feel like. Um, six and six, what can they improve on on offense and defense defense? is just, I mean, a lot of this is just want, you know, Jokic hasn't turned on the gas at all. I think this is the worst sort of like seven game stretch of his uh, defensively that we've seen in quite some time. I don't remember him having a seven-game stretch where he was sort of this apathetic on the defensive end. So most, a lot of this is just intensity. And then I would say, you know, the transition stuff is just a lot of like, hey, are you locked in and you're trying to win the edges here, win the margins? Offensively, um, this is a really good question because there's a lot offensively that they can continue to work on. But I'll say to me the most important one is further integrating Michael Porter. He just He represents to me such a large part of their ceiling. And you could say it's the spacing, the timing, 
the, the timing on their continuity offense to me is number one on the season. But if you told me right now, how can you really elevate this team's floor over the next 10 games? It would be getting Michael Porter just a few more shots within the flow of the offense and really making him more of a weapon that makes teams panic off of that uh, Jokic and PJ dribble handoff and pick and roll. Miroslav asks, how do you feel about Bones, Jamal, Christian Brown, Michael Porter Jr., and DeAndre Jordan lineup to start the second? Um, basically giving Jamal and MPJ six stints instead of four. Um, so really the question here is Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. with Bones Highland as a sort of second unit, a super second unit. I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I think with Mike, with Murray right now, you are probably, it's probably smart to play him in shorter stints with rests in between. I think the idea of playing six stints is not that crazy for NBA players. There's a lot of guys that do it. I think LeBron did it last night where he comes out for really short rest, but then he doesn't play as long. I think it's hard to build an actual rotation though. You know, Christian Brown and DeAndre Jordan as your only defenders out there. Is that enough against the second unit? When you have Bones, Jamal, and MPJ, you're probably going to score a lot of points anyway. I will say, I think there might be diminishing returns, just like there is on Jamal, MPJ, and Jokic. There probably is on Bones, Jamal, and MPJ. So I don't mind it. It's worth a try, but I don't think it's the lineup that I would go to right now. Um, Michael Porter Jr. with the bench makes sense. Michael Porter Jr. right now is kind of a lineup savior. Uh, if you look at some of the data, he he works with a lot of different lineups right now. I think it would be easiest if we could get Jamal Murray. I like Michael Porter with Jokic. I, I think it'd be easiest if you got Jamal with the bench working a little bit better than it has so far. Um, some Elrod says MPJ is getting in passing lanes and getting on the board seems to be engaged mostly as his defense legit. Uh, he still makes the most mistakes I think of anybody on the team, but he also, to your point, I will say, I think his effort level has been higher his attention to detail, I think, is always going to be low, but his effort level has been higher. He does have such a, you know, he's so tall and so big that he does sort of tip and deflect ball uh, the ball a lot. Um, I will say Michael Porter's defense has not been especially loud to me so far this season. It, it's regular loud in that he makes a lot of mistakes. He doesn't always see the, you know, read the court well. And I would say I don't think he communicates very well. On the list, I have a play where him and Christian Brown get screwed up. And when you watch it, it's very clear he did not communicate properly the cut that was happening that led to the confusion. So um, I, I can't say that it's been legit, but his defensive tools are still there for him to be an impact player. When you ask me that question, though, Elrod, one of the things I'm wondering is, I always think about these as in terms of like, if the playoffs started now, what would the team's game plan be? 1,000% to take advantage of Michael Porter on the defensive end. So um, a lot of work to do still, but he has, you know, 75 games still to, to get better at that. Uh, Ethan asks, would Zeke at the four work alongside DJ? Keep DJ's rebounding, but a new look on the bench might be good. Also, who on the Nuggets has listened to Taylor Swift album the most? No idea that second part. Um, the first one though, <laughs> I don't know why Zeke Najee's not playing. And Jeff Green, to me, is a guy who – he reminds me of Wilson Chandler a lot. He knows what to do. He's a smart player. He has the skill set. He can ISO. And Denver in that second unit, I think Malone is miscalculating that he that Jeff Green can be an offensive boost to that team. He does score sometimes, but I don't think the Jeff Green ISO is like – there's not a lot of things that spiral off of that. So I don't think it's one of those ones where it's like his ISOs are leading to kickouts and leading to all this stuff. I think it's just, hey, see, he ISOs and he scores sometimes at an above average rate, but still ISOs are uh, in general below average options. So even if you're good at them, you're still good at something that's not 
gen generally speaking, very fruitful. So could you swap him out? Jeff Green was bad in this last game, so we're coming on the heels of a bad Jeff Green game, but I don't think Jeff Green is bad as a player. I still think he's really smart, and it feels weird to me to say to take him out to give a player who's unproven, who maybe just provides a little bit more spacing, maybe a little bit more defense or switchability. Nonetheless, it's worth a try. I don't know why Zeke Naji is not getting a, a, a run, and I suspect at some point we will see that, more likely because Jeff Green will need rest nights and he'll need some other things. I don't think, if you ask me right now, if just swapping Jeff Green with Zeke Naji fix things, I don't think so. Um, even if it is like a marginally better option. So we'll have to find out. Um, all right. It looks like that's it for today, guys. Like I said, this was an ad-free edition of the podcast. I'll throw this one in the DNVR Nuggets podcast as well. If you guys are watching this, you could do me a favor. Every year at the start of the year, you could see the podcast rankings on all the different charts, chartable or whatever. Those are heavily influenced by who, how many recent reviews you get. We haven't had a review on the Apple Podcast app in a really long time. I think it's been months. So if you have, if you're watching the show, if you enjoy it and you have never left us a review, it's the easiest thing you can do, especially if, especially if you have an Apple phone. Just open up Apple Podcasts, go to the DNVR Nuggets one, scroll down and leave us a quick five-star rating and then write a little review there uh, that could say very nice things about me or mean things about D-Line. Either way, it works for me. Um, thanks for tuning in. Hit the like button and hopefully we'll see you guys tomorrow with a brand new episode right around two o'clock.